morning, church. It is so good to be with you this morning. I'm wearing a mask because, as many of you know, last Saturday I contracted uh, COVID. My symptoms are pretty minor now, but uh, out of my love for you and my love to preach, I'm going to wear this mask to protect everyone here today from getting COVID along with me. Appreciate your prayers and uh, your care for us over this last week. Well, uh, let me start out here this morning by sharing something that happened in my youth that I think will help us to understand the topic of what we're going to be addressing today. Interestingly, when I was uh, entering high school, I went to a new church, a church that turned out to be life-changing for me. It had a huge impact on my, my life and my ministry. I met Val there. I was called into the ministry there. It was just huge. But interestingly, there was one strange thing. Now, looking back as a pastor myself, there was one strange thing that I remember, and I remembered as I was preparing this sermon. Every year, our pastor, a man I so dearly loved and respected, um, would preach this special sermon. It was the annual stewardship or giving sermon. You've all heard one of those, right? And, and when that sermon was being presented or delivered, he always began by saying something like this. If you're visiting with us today, please understand, we only preach about giving once a year. In essence, as I look back at that, I think inadvertently he was saying, hey, I'm really sorry that you chose to visit us or come to church today. Uh, I'm going to be preaching on a subject that's a downer, I know, but please come back anyway. I promise we're not going to talk about giving or money for at least another 51 weeks. Like I said, since becoming a pastor myself, I understand why he tiptoed around the whole subject of giving. But here's something else I've learned. I've learned that nothing, my friends, minimizes the truth like apologizing for it. And the truth that I hope to communicate as we look in God's word this morning, whether you're here in person or you're worshiping with us at home, is that the way that believers, the way that followers of the Lord Jesus Christ view, handle, spend, and give their money is of great importance to God. That being noted, if you've been worshiping with us for any length of time, or if you're watching online, something that is rather unusual about us, you probably notice that we do not pass an offering plate. In fact, from our very existence as a church, we have instead placed offering boxes in the back of the auditorium so that anyone at any time can privately give their gift to the Lord before, during, or after the service. Of course, you can also give by mail or online. But depending on your church background and experience, that's either very refreshing or it's downright strange to you. <laughs> at Chantilly Bible Church, however, We've never wanted anyone to give mechanically or grudgingly or feeling under pressure that somebody was watching when they gave. And if I'm honest with you, passing an offering plate makes visitors feel awkward. And I really believe sometimes it, it also uh, bolsters the common criticism by disgruntled churchgoers or non-church goers, that the church is all they're, all they're ever asking for is money. We never wanted anybody to feel that way. Our goal from the beginning at Chantilly Bible Church has been that we might be a people who are filled with the Spirit, who are voluntarily loving and joyfully giving to the glory of God for His work and for the good of His people. 
but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. For now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 25. That's where we need to start this morning. Exodus 25. As you're doing that, let me quickly point out that the book of Exodus, we now have almost 30 sermons in the book of Exodus. We started way back in September, but we're in the final stretch, the last three sermons of Exodus. It can be divided into three broad uh, sections, three major sections. In chapters 1 through 18, the first section, it deals primarily with Israel being in bondage in Egypt, and they're crying out to God for deliverance. And uh, they, God raises up Moses, as you know, the plagues, the, the, uh, the, the big miracles that happened, the institution of the first Passover, the expulsion of Israel. So many things happen in this time. The final stages of that first section is, you know, that God continued to provide for his people in the wilderness miraculously in spite of their continual grumbling, and they ended up at Mount Sinai, right at the foot of it. In the second section, chapter 19 through 34, it details God's giving of the law to Moses and the ratification of the Mosaic Covenant. They're uh, um, adopting the people of Israel to himself as his special treasure. Just as God promised he was going to do in Exodus chapter 6, 6 through 8, God was ready to fulfill the rest of that promise by coming into the camp of Israel and to dwell with his people. And thus included in this section of the, the second part of the book is a very large section, chapters 25 through 31, where God provides Moses with intimate details, specifications, measurements, materials on how the tabernacle was to be built and when. Among these instructions is here in chapter 25. Look at verses 1 and 2. Here, remarkably, the Lord says to Moses, look carefully at the words. Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Now we're going to talk a whole lot more about that offering in just a minute. But for now, you know the sad story, what happened, why Moses was still up there with God. He was receiving the Mosaic law. The people of Israel plummeted into one of the lowest points spiritually they could. They broke God's covenant. They worshiped the golden calf. At that moment, God could have said, party's over, turn off the lights, end of the... Uh, but because of Moses' intercession on behalf of his people, God graciously uh, recommits to the covenant he made with them. And when that happens, that meant the, re the renewal of that covenant meant the construction of the tabernacle was absolutely essential. So the third section, what we've entered into this week, 35 through 40, describes the actual construction of the tabernacle and the furnishings by the people of God. So turn over to chapter 35. That sets us up for where we're at. And let's pick up the narrative there by looking at verses 1 through 3. In the first three verses of this chapter, it's almost a, a repeat verbatim of God's command on the Sabbath rest back in Exodus chapter 31, verse 15. Here's what he says. These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to God, holy to the Lord. Whoever does work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire at all in your dwelling places on the Sabbath. 
Uh, you might be wondering, as I did, well, what does that have to do with, you know, giving or where he, the whole section of the rest of the book is on giving here from this section of the, of the book anyway. What's that have to do? But then if you think about it, think about this with me for a minute. As we talk about giving, no other culture in ancient times took a day off. You have to understand at this point, survival was often a day-to-day, season-to-season affair. And I believe God commanded his people to take the Sabbath rest, not just because God wanted them to be enriched and nourished by this uninterrupted time spent with him. But also, if you remember how the whole Sabbath rest was first instituted with the man and everything, God wanted to remind his people that he bore sole and true responsibility for providing for them and that they needed to trust him. You see, we can't give the way God intends for us to give unless we truly trust him. Amen? Amen? Okay. Now, with the Sabbath restored, the Sabbath rest, Moses now urges the people, like he did back in chapter 25, to come and bring their possessions, the things that they needed to construct a tabernacle. Look at verses 4 through 9 here. Here's what Moses tells the people. This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast please. Remarkably, after providing this list of things needed to build and operate the tabernacle as God designed, notice what happens. Look down at verses 21 and 22. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Look down at verse 29. All men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart was moved. Are you seeing a theme here? whose heart was moved to bring anything for the work of the Lord, had, com- had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Interestingly, as you start to look at this, this call for contribution was not just a call for simple contributions of the materials need, but also for skillful workers and craftsmen to come. Look at verse 10. Here's what it says here. Verse 10. Let every skillful man among you come. And make all that the Lord has commanded. Later down in verses 25 and 26, we read, And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose heart stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. Everyone. Men and women alike, Scripture says here, whose heart has been moved, whose heart has been stirred, provided the materials and the services necessary for the construction 
of God's house, the tabernacle. And as we look at their responses today, I want us to suggest, I want to, I want to present to you four lessons about a heart of giving. Four things that are going to be true of those who have a heart for giving. Lesson number one. God wants, to give, wants us to give with a willing heart. God wants us to give with a willing heart. Folks, this was a free will offering. It wasn't mandatory. There are no tear-jerking appeals. There's no thundering lectures from the pulpit. Moses simply puts out the need so that everyone with a willing heart could give as much or little as none as they decided in their own hearts to give. The Apostle Paul makes a similar command in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, or instructions anyway, when he says this in the New Testament. Each one must do just as he has proposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let me remind you here that one of the things that sets apart biblical Christianity from most all the religions of the world is its laser-like focus on our hearts. Have you ever noticed that? The maker of heaven and earth isn't just concerned about our giving and what we do. He is concerned about our intentions. He is concerned about our motives. He is concerned about our hearts. It's repeated throughout this text. It's funny, in preparation for this sermon, I read through much of the Gospels and Jesus' teaching on giving and money, and he spoke on it quite a bit, if you haven't noticed that. But mind you, when Jesus was speaking about money, he didn't need money. The truth is, he owns everything already. So why then, why then did Jesus, or why did God ask us to give to him something that he already owns anyway? I think the answer to that question is best answered in the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Remember those words? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Contrast, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Big Boom, kind of thing here. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The bottom line says Jesus is where what we treasure most controls us whether we want to admit it or not. And if you read through the teachings of Jesus and elsewhere in the gospel, one thing that comes out very clearly, we brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing out either. And yet how often, being honest with ourselves, do we spend the majority of our time and our energies accumulating unimportant things and glorifying in the gaudy trinkets of this temporary world at the expense, at the loss of storing up heavenly wealth of God's gracious blessings in eternity? Yes, our eternal life is a free gift of grace. But Jesus reminds us here, we have the opportunity, brothers and sisters in Christ, to lay up for ourselves treasure in our heavenly home. Laying up treasures in heaven includes, but is not exclusive or limited to giving money. It's also accomplished through bringing others to Christ, 
and acts of obedience to God. And amazingly, according to Jesus, these treasures, unlike the temporary treasures of this world, they're not susceptible to decay or destruction or to theft. In fact, he says, nothing affects them. Nothing changes them. They are eternal. One thing I want to make clear is that uh, I don't want to be misunderstood. Jesus is not teaching his followers to be sloppy or careless about our money. In fact, according to multiple scripture references, I could give you several in a second. We need to have solid financial plans to be the good stewards of the earthly resources God has entrusted to us to be used for his glory. However, the other thing that jumps out to me as I was studying this week, our first loyalty, brothers and sisters in Christ, should be to those things that do not fade. They cannot be stolen or used up and never wear out. Unlike the lost world, we should not be so fascinated and consumed by our possessions lest they consume and possess us. You know, it's funny, I see this commercial quite a bit. Popular credit card catchphrase is, hey, what's in your wallet, right? But actually, as you look at the text here in the words of Jesus, when we speak biblically about giving or serving, the question God asks believers is, What's in your heart? What's in your heart, brothers and sisters, in Christ? God wants us to give and serve with a willing heart. Lesson two, God wants us to give intentionally. Intentionally. We see here, in, after urging the people to gather from their possessions the things needed to construct the tabernacle, we're told in verse 20 that the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence. I like the New Living Translation of verse 20, where it says, All the people left Moses and went to their tents. I love this, to prepare their gifts, to prepare their gifts. And I remind you once again of Paul's instruction in 2 Corinthians 9-7. Listen, each one must do just as he purposed, intentionality here, in his heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Clearly, as I look at both these texts, the gift the believers are to give is not to be an impulsive decision, but a very deliberate, thoughtful, prayerful one. In fact, Paul tells them, before I arrive, I want you to assess your ability to give. Lay that aside every week. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do on the first day, there's some thought here, of every week each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Intentionality. And I see that as I look at Exodus 36, verse 3, too. Notice that Moses had developed a system where the workers had the materials for their construction delivered to them and supplied to them by the people every morning. Exodus 36, verse 3. And so as I look at these uh, examples of 2 Corinthians 9, 7, as I look at the example here in Exodus chapter 36, that uh, I see God wants us to establish regular patterns when it comes to our giving, be it daily, be it weekly, or be it monthly. God clearly is looking for consistency. 
And this way our heart becomes, it becomes normal in our hearts to give. Remember, it's all about the heart. Do we really trust him? So what does that look like? For some of you, this might be old hat. I don't know. But I thought I would take just a moment to think about how do we give some thought to the matter of giving? And I realize that different people in different places in life, this will be totally different. But let me give you several steps here that might help you in that right direction. Of course, number one is pray. If our goal is obedience to God, it only makes sense, doesn't it, that we seek him in prayer for wisdom and guidance on how we should use the money he has entrusted to us for his glory. We need to ask that in prayer. Second, prepare. God calls on us to be good stewards of the blessings that he gives us. And I think that means knowing what we're able to give, when we're able to give, and where we want to give it. Prepare. Study. Prioritize is number three. The whole idea here of a gift is to, is, is to put God first, right? And if, if we haven't already done so, that might mean that we have to put that donation, that gift, into a budget so that it's always going to be there. Prioritize. And then give. Not just talk about it, but follow through. Once you know the amount you want to give, follow through on what you have purposed in your heart to do. And number five, repeat. <laughs> repeat. Making giving a part of your routine will help keep the priority God desires. And not just something spontaneous or occasional, but meaningful. Folks, I can tell you, being the recipient of so many generous gifts in my life and ministry, what a blessing it is. It is so exciting. It really is a blessing to give. I love what Tony Evans tells us when he says this. Indeed, in God's economy, you will be more blessed if you're a spiritual conduit rather than a spiritual cul-de-sac. Which are we? A conduit or a cul-de-sac? Lesson number three. God wants us to give proportionally to what he has given us. Looking back at verses 24 through 28, I want you to observe that while all were free to give or not give, the text strongly suggests that there were very few, if any, who refused to be a part of the contribution towards the construction of the tabernacle. And it appears that those who were wealthy gave what only wealthy people could give. The finest stones, the gems, the most precious oils and fragrances. Those who have lesser means gave what they had, but they gave as the heart led them. With these things in mind, we really cannot have a study about giving, I'm sure, without talking about the huge debate of tithing. I knew that was going to come up. Somebody was going to ask me. So let me just stop and put that right out here. It's been a debate forever. I can remember as kids wrestling through this. When we talk about a tithe, we're talking about giving 10% of our income as the Lord commanded in the Mosaic Law to the Jewish people. But here's the thing. While the idea of a tithe is still present in the New Testament, I could not find any place where it explicitly applied to the church or to believers. Instead, as I look to Scripture, Christians are called to give a free will giving, a giving offering in response to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ based on our faith in God as our generous provider. 
Look, for example, at 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 10. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has purposed or decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. But what's the takeaway? Does tithing apply today? Personally, I would say no. For gospel-touched people, tithing is not an ironclad rule as it is or as it was for the Israelites under the law. That being said, I do, however, recommend when we're doing premarital counseling that couples give serious consideration to 10% being a good starting place. I recognize when I say that, oh my goodness, 10% is overwhelming. On the other hand, I know there are people that 10% is a drop in the bucket. And so for gospel-touched people, I would say this. Tithing should never be the ceiling of our giving, but it shouldn't be the floor either. When it comes to giving in the New Testament, here's the only thing I see concretely presented time and time again. Be generous, be cheerful, be willing to give as the Lord leads, sacrificially, continuously, and in proportion to how God is blessing us. And please don't miss verse 8 here again of 2 Corinthians 9. Here's what Paul writes. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all, notice all the alls and every, all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And when I read a verse like this, it tells me, practically speaking, that regardless of a believer's circumstances, a believer who wants to genuinely give can do so in dependence on God because God is all sufficient. Fourth lesson. God wants us to give as an act of worship. Folks, the Bible is really clear. Everything that a believer does is to be done as an act of worship. We are to put our very best effort into all that we do for the glory of God. Now, practically speaking, what does it look like for our giving to be an act of worship? Let me try to define that with four thoughts. Good evaluation. First, we worship God with our time. We worship God with our time. So let me ask, how today are you using your time to expand God's kingdom? Can you say that you give of your time in a sacrificial way? We worship God with our time. We worship God with our talents. Of all the gifts, of all the abilities that God has given you, 
Are you using any of them on a regular basis to make his glory known? We worship God with our talents. We also worship God third with our treasures. Here in Exodus, the people gave with a willing heart. And I really believe this is true because they viewed their gifts as an offering as unto the Lord. You see it over and over again in our text. Yes, the immediate purpose was to build a place of worship for their God. But the people viewed very clearly their offerings as a gift to God himself. You know, that being noted... Each year, as a church, Chantilly Bible Church puts together a church budget. And this budget helps us to provide for us a plan on how we see the coming year, how God is, we're expecting God to work. And praise God. Together, our financial gifts support our preachers and our staff and their families. They help us to maintain and to worship in a building like this and to keep the grounds looking so beautiful. Aren't our grounds beautiful? They fund our ministries and our missionaries that are spreading the gospel locally and across the globe. They provide the funds necessary for helping the deacons to provide for the poor in our local communities. They allow us to be equipped in the word of God and help us to come alongside of our parents to reach that next generation for Jesus Christ. Folks, we are not giving just to people, but to God because it is his work we are seeking to do. So let me humbly urge you, if you are a committed part of Chantilly Bible Church, and if you believe deeply in, in the mission and see our church doing what you believe God would call a church to do, if you and your family are blessed, equipped, encouraged here, let me humbly urge you to honor God by making one of your first giving investments here. And after you do that, of course, there's no reason to stop giving. Be generous to the poor, support missionaries, give to the food shelters, or any other way that God leads you to give. But I urge you to make one of your first investments to your church family. And finally, fourth, we worship God with willing hearts. I've said this multiple times throughout the text, because it really is, if we can't trust God, it's very hard to give as he intended. Where is our heart this morning? Honestly, the way we've responded to these first three points as we've talked about worship already give us the answer to this final question about where our hearts are. In closing, the events described here in 35 and 36, this offering is remarkable. Look at verses 4 through 7, now in, verse, in chapter 36, and notice how the people responded. All the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing. He said to Moses, hey, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that God has commanded us to do. So Moses commanded, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of this sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing materials that they had sufficient to do all the work and more. Every preacher's dream. Every preacher's dream. 
how wonderful it would be that, you know, that that's the way things worked on a regular basis, but it is a bit of stretch. So how in closing should we apply what we've been just studying? I want to give you four challenges, I believe, all based on our text. And the springboard on that, I want to present a verse, one that's been very meaningful to me since I was a little kid. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Can we read this together? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's say that one more time. Let it sink into your heart. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Folks, on the hill of Calvary, on a rugged, bloody cross, Jesus voluntarily poured out everything for you and me. No reserves. No half measures, no holding back, pouring out everything that he had, making himself nothing so that we might become rich. With that pattern of giving in view this week, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider three things. First, would you join me in asking yourself, am I truly thinking about money and worldly possessions in the right way, in a Christ-like way? Do I see all that I possess as coming from God, as something he's entrusted to me to use for his glory and his honor? Do I understand myself as a steward of these possessions and not an owner of them? Second, would you prayerfully consider with me your personal giving and your service? Would you ask yourself, am I giving worshipfully, sacrificially, faithfully for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom and with his glory in mind? Lots of opportunities this summer to make an investment in kids' lives. Won't you pray about that and consider that? Third, the big kahuna of everything. Would you have a heart examination? Would you allow God to search your heart, check your heart? Keep in mind that whatever we give, whatever we do, be it small or great, the Lord doesn't really need or want our, our skills or money. He wants our heart. Folks, I am convinced that when the people of God give generously and that giving of the people is used properly as it is in a church for the building up of the body of Christ, for the furtherance of the kingdom and for the needs of those around, especially the household of faith, God is glorified and we are blessed. Amen? May that be so of us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word. I imagine for many of us, this is not new material. But Lord, really going to the heart of things, where is our heart? We sang a moment ago about allowing you to be on the throne of our hearts. But I pray when it comes to our service and with our giving, that you would help us, Lord, to have a willing heart. That we would do so intentionally, 
and in proportion to how you bless us. May it be a true act of worship. Thank you, Father. Transform our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.